Father, we thank you for who you are. Have you rescued us from darkness and brought us into light? How you are the true Father that we can look to that is perfect. You comfort us. Even in the midst of uh, our stories with our own fathers, uh, God, you feel the need of those gaps that have been left because of our brokenness and imperfection. I pray that we would feel that this morning. Pray that you would speak to us, Spirit, uh, by your power as we look at your word this morning, that you would uh, convict us, that we would examine uh, our hearts and be honest with ourselves and make adjustments and changes to glorify you, to look more like uh, your son. So give us eyes to see it this morning. Uh, Father, give us ears to hear it. Give us hearts to be transformed into the likeness of your son. Father, would you bring the Spirit to make the resurrected Christ upon us this morning. We ask it in your name. Amen. Well, today is June 19th. Uh, If you're not familiar with that date, it's an important date in our country's history. I'll fill you in uh, a little bit of why uh, that's the case. Um, In 1863, on January 1st, the Emancipation Proclamation was signed by President Abraham Lincoln declaring that we are now free, that uh, all of our people are no longer slaves in our country as they were in colonial times, but people are now set free. Uh, The the North has won the Civil War, uh, the South has not won, and he signed that declaration into effect on January 1st, again, 1863. But the way our country was set up at the time, you can't tweet that. Um, Information does not carry as fast as it does today, and so he had to send out actually armies uh, across our country, especially in the South, to declare this truth that now uh, people were set free. And so as it happened, it was on June 19th. In 1865, two and a half years later after uh, the signing of of this declaration that General Gordon Granger rode into Galveston, Texas and declared freedom for the people that were still enslaved two and a half years after that was signed. And that was the last place in our country's history uh, where we saw slavery happen as we know it and people were set free. And so that's why we celebrate June 19th. Juneteenth, if you're unfamiliar, it's a national holiday, got signed last year. Both presidents, whoever would have won, said they were going to sign it, that this needs to be a national holiday for us to remember the freedom um, that needs to be declared in the midst of our country. And so uh, it's interesting that we happen to be landing in the text we're landing in today in Colossians chapter 3 because there's going to be language of bondservants or some of your translations say slave and masters. And we're going to talk about why that is confusing for us in our cultural context in America and what it actually means and what we can actually learn from it. Well, not only is it Juneteenth today, it is Father's Day. It's been mentioned already. Uh, My father did a great job raising me. I love him. He is a great dad. Um, But his spiritual journey has been like a roller coaster. And currently, uh, as he sits, he would call himself an atheist. Uh, At one point in the 80s, he was a licensed pastor. And so it has been up and down his entire life. And the reason I want to talk about that and how these kind of um, go together with what's going on in our text and what's going on 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 Juneteenth is because um, about 15 years ago, I was at a conference in Ohio. And uh, I happened to break my wrist, and it was bad, like really bad. Like I needed surgery right away. Um, uh, I don't live there. I'm going to this hospital, and I'm getting ready to go into surgery. I'm in pre-op, and now I'm just all drugged up, right, because they're about to cut into my arm. And so as I'm sitting there, right before I go in, my dad gets word that I'm, uh, I'm having surgery, and he calls my phone. 
And my friend that was sitting there with me in the waiting room picks up my phone. Oh, hey, Mr. Demeter. And I said, is that my dad? I said, give me the phone. So I grabbed the phone, zero filter at this point, right? Because the drugs, don't do the drugs. Uh, or don't talk to people while you're about ready to, to, to go into surgery. And so I pick up the phone and I just, I just go in on him. I'm like, dad, what is the deal with you and Jesus? What's the story? One point you loved him, now you don't love him. You don't think he was real or he doesn't claim. Who, who do you believe Jesus to be? Why don't you love him anymore? My dad's kind of laughing on the other end because he knows I'm not quite in my right mind. And um, my buddy grabs the phone from me. Oh, Mr. Demeter, I'll, uh, he'll call you later or whatever. And so like a couple days later, my dad calls me to check on me and just like, hey, do you remember the conversation we had on the phone? I was like, it's fuzzy. I probably cursed at you. I don't exactly, and something about Jesus, I don't remember. And he laughed at it and he goes, yeah, you were really going after me about why don't I love Jesus anymore? And, and we had a good laugh about it. But then I was like, dad, I'm, I really want to have that conversation because I'm confused. I'm confused at how you arrived at where you are. I can make guesses and assumptions, but man, I would love to, to have a conversation. And my dad's a guy that would sit down and talk to me about those types of things, but he hadn't at this point in our journey. So he goes, well, yeah, that's, yeah, I'll talk to you about it someday. And then months go by, we have phone conversations and check up on life and the kids and things like that. And then at the end, I'm always going like, dad, I'd, I'd still really love to have this conversation with you. Oh, yeah, yeah, we'll talk about it, we'll talk about it. And that's kind of how it went for uh, about a year. He came out to visit. He was doing some business here in town, and we were playing golf. And about the 15th hole, we're getting ready to tee off. And he turns to me, and he goes, hey, you know that, that question you keep asking me? I said, yeah. He goes, I have an answer for you. I was like, okay, <laughs> like, okay. Like, he goes, I wrote some stuff down. I, I felt like it was better to write it down than just for us to talk about it. I said, okay, well, at least we're getting somewhere. He goes, I'll leave, it, I'll leave it on your desk in the morning. And so I come down. He flies out the next morning early for business. And I come down. And on my desk is a, uh, is, is a paper. And uh, the title of the paper is like a cover sheet. And it says, why don't you love Jesus? A father's answer to his son's question. And then it's 72 pages of a paper. My dad's a really smart guy. He's very successful. And what was a 72-page paper about 15 years ago has now morphed into a 120-page kind of manifesto document that keeps getting added to it over the years. And so I read it again this last week. And the first 30 pages is kind of his personal journey about getting to know who Jesus was. He grew up in a Christian home, went to a Christian college, and, and that's, that, that piece is really, really helpful for me in the document just to understand, oh, I kind of understand why you would think this about this because of some of his background the last 30 pages is really kind of where he sits now and what he believes about secular humanism is what he would call himself as an atheist and why he thinks that's the best worldview for him. And then the middle section, which is about, you know, 90 pages or so, um, is basically like every single argument against the Bible or against Jesus and his perspective from a very scientific enlightenment kind of viewpoint. Um, the reason I bring all this up is because I was, I, was, I was reading again this week and Man, it's just tough to read. And I miss the Father's Day and like, but in the middle section on page 80 specifically, he has a whole page entitled Slavery. Let me read what he says at the beginning of kind of his argument uh, against why he doesn't believe in Jesus or the Bible. This is what he says. He says, it was eye-opening when I studied the Civil War and learned that both sides believed that the same God portrayed in the Bible was on their side. 
Why would the Confederates believe that God was on their side when they enslaved people? The answer to that question is an easy one. It's because slavery is condoned in the Bible. There is nowhere in the Bible where there is a statement about the immorality of enslaving other human beings. End quote. Then he has a whole section about it. Is that true? If that's true, that's a problem for us as Christians. You know, it's interesting uh, when we read the Bible without understanding historical literary context, man, we can get pretty confused pretty fast. And that's what I believe my dad is doing in this section specifically about slavery and a lot of the sections in his paper. He's putting his American lens on when he hears the word slavery on top of the Bible and the text without understanding the cultural context or the literary context of what Paul is actually saying and other writers are saying in the Bible. And he's confused about that. I said this quote a couple of weeks ago as we're kind of in this subsection of Colossians 3, walking through these couple verses at a time. This is the third of this section. Mark Maynell, in his commentary, says this about this from, from Colossians 3.18 down to the end of the chapter. He says this. He says, the passage, this passage, is one of a little collection of New Testament passages. It parallels Ephesians 5, 1 Timothy 5, Titus 2, and 1 Peter 3 that have caused more sweat and ink flow than most. To contemporary ears, these brief but punchy commands seem dated and even dangerous. This is why we need to see what Paul is and more significantly is not saying. And so I just want to take a, um, a little time before we actually get into our text. We're actually going to start in verse 22 to understand what's happening culturally so we don't attach our American lenses onto the text to understand what actually is Paul saying when he uses this language of servant or bond servant, or some of your translations say slave and masters. Because if we don't do the work there, we're going to be really confused and we're going to miss what God might have for us in this text this morning. So uh, the way uh, we think about slavery in our country because of this dark cloud that kind of hangs over who we are as a country and a nation when we birthed our nation is not the same slavery that Paul is talking about or servanthood that Paul is talking about. Um, that slavery that we, again, sometimes read into the text is based on the transatlantic slave trade that started in 1619 when people came over to Africa and they captured and they kidnapped people and they transported them to a new country and sold them as property. And that's not what Paul is talking about here. Matter of fact, the Bible actually goes against that type of behavior a couple of times. In Exodus 21, 16, it talks about if you uh, kidnap people, you should be put to death. That's not okay to do that. In the New Testament, 1 Timothy uh, chapter 1, verse 10, gives this list of things that if you act this way, you will not inherit the kingdom of God is the language. And one of the things on that list is to be an enslaver. The Bible does speak against this type of colonial slavery, not only in these specific passages, but if you read the whole context of what the Bible is saying, it pushes against this version of slavery that we're so used to hearing and knowing about in our culture. The Bible doesn't condone slavery, it condemns it. It is not okay 
to act that way. And again, we sometimes get tripped up because of the language. Some of the other differences between American kind of colonial chattel slavery and what Paul is talking about here uh, is in Rome, the Roman Empire, um, this slavery or servanthood or bond servanthood was almost all voluntary. And over 30% of the population was inside, in some type of slavery or servanthood uh, condition within a household. And that's hard for us to understand because, again, we attach like our meaning of slavery to, to what we're reading into the text. But if we, if we really step back for a second and look at it and go like, okay, well, there's certain things that you can't pay yourself, right? Like uh, if you have a, a huge student loan debt or maybe uh, most of us right now, we couldn't pull out our phones and pay off our mortgage in one click, right? Like we have these big debts and we need to pay them off. So what do we do? We go to work. And we get money and we pay off our debts. A lot of the voluntarily servanthood or slavery in this culture that Paul's writing to, that was their context. They were stepping in because they couldn't pay a debt and they were serving this family in the household so that they could be freed one day of their debt. Uh, the best example that I can think that might be helpful for us to connect the dots culturally is when somebody enlists in the military. Right? They're voluntarily enlisting to a branch of the service where they say, okay, I'm going to act this way. I'm going to dress this way. I'm going to be under this authority for my own good. I will benefit from it. But you kind of lose yourself in that cultural context. And this is what Paul is talking about when he's addressing bond servants or slaves in the text. It's very different from colonial slavery. Some of the other differences was uh, that the slavery or the servanthood that Paul was talking about here had zero to do with your ethnicity or your race. Like Greeks had servants that were Greeks. Romans had servants that were Romans. It had nothing to do with our version of slavery in the colonial times where Africans were deemed as three-fifths of humans in our declaration. Like it's nothing like that. And God is against that type of mentality that we're all created in the image of God. We all have value and worth. And those things were written in to our declaration to kind of justify the means of owning people. It's not okay. And that's not what Paul is addressing here. And the last thing, really, if you read the entirety of the Bible, it, the, the, the Bible kind of pushes the bar up higher, raises the bar on the ancient world of this version of servanthood. Right, even in Exodus 21, there's all these laws of they just come out of Egypt, right? God's people are crying out to him because they are enslaved in an oppressive way that's not right. And God hears their cry and rescues them because they're not being treated correctly. And then he says, remember, remember when you get in power, remember when you get authority, remember you were slaves in Egypt, don't treat people this way. It's not how I want you to treat people that were uh, born in my image. It's not okay. Exodus 21 talks about um, if you kill a slave that you own or a servant that you own, you know what the penalty was? You would die. They would kill you. If your slave or your servant gets injured on the job, do you know what happens? They get set free. And so there's all these protection laws that God puts in place in the context of serving one another in a household. If you're trying to pay off that, it had nothing to do with colonial slavery. And often we attach again our American lenses to what Paul is saying. And we go, wait a second. I'm not okay with that. And we shouldn't. But we need to understand the cultural context. And we need to understand what the Bible is actually saying holistically. Another thing that it raised the bar of is that 
Uh, in Leviticus 25, 43, it says, do not rule over the people that you, you are in charge over ruthlessly. That is not okay to treat people like that. Um, slaves or servants in God's economy had Sabbath rest like the rest of the household, not like it was in Egypt, not like it was in the early parts of our country. And then in the New Testament, we're going to see it today, that Paul actually gives agency or value as he speaks directly to the servants in the household, saying, you have a choice. You are a part of this kingdom and what it means to follow Jesus for the household. And then masters have accountability. There's an accountability if you have authority over somebody, which was not the case in our early country when it came to slavery. One of the most radical things that the early church did was to share a common table. Right? They would bring in their servants and they would bring in their, their parents and they would bring in their children and they would sit at the table and eat and worship together. So the Bible actually raises the bar on what this thing is. It does not condone this version of slavery that our, uh, we understand in America. It actually condemns it. So we need to understand kind of that backdrop to what we're moving towards. And then you have people like William Wilberforce who fight against uh, colonial slavery based on what he believes about the Bible. So no, let's not get confused. I know that was kind of a lot to jump into our text, but I think it's helpful for us to understand not to be quick to read the Bible or be sloppy in our interpretation, but to sit and go, okay, what does this actually mean? What does it actually say? I think there's some things that we need to grab from this text that we might miss if we didn't have some of that background. And just to give us some more cultural context to understand where we are in Colossians. Remember, we've talked about this. We have one more week in Colossians, and then we'll start a new series uh, starting uh, in the Old Testament in a couple of weeks. But that's going to we land the plane for Colossians in these next two weeks. Remember what Paul is doing. He is in prison. He's in chains. He's writing this group, this small group that's a church plant. They're having issues with the culture, and they're asking Paul, what do we need to do with this situation? And he tells us in uh, the chapter, first chapter, uh, verse 28, he says, this is my whole purpose. I'm writing this thing to you. This is why I'm in chains. This is why I'm struggling. So what? You would become mature in Christ. I would present you mature in Christ. And so Paul is saying, I don't want you to be an infant in Jesus. I don't want you to be an adolescence in Jesus. I want you to grow into maturity. As he talks about in the first chapter, like the gospel is growing and bearing fruit in you, increasing in you. We don't want you just to become a Christian so that you don't go to hell and you go to heaven. We want you to know Jesus, to grow in him, that you would be changed, that you would be the full version of yourself in all of its humanity. That is our desire. That is Paul's desire. And he's saying, man, Paul's going, there's these groups that are kind of stunting your growth, stunting your maturity, causing you to kind of stall out in your growth and maturity. And don't fall into the trap, right? In, in chapter 2, verse 8, he says it this way, where he says, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. Don't get pulled away from these different groups in your culture that will pull you away from knowing who you are and growing in Jesus. And that's our goal as well as a church, to help us understand who we are in Christ and how that causes us to grow and mature. And then he tells the people, and he tells us at the beginning of chapter 3, how do you do this? What does this look like to grow and not get pulled away in this drift from the culture? He says, seek Christ and set your mind on him. 
Seek him, set your mind on him. Like when you wake up in the morning, you have to be intentional to go, I'm going to follow Jesus because if you don't do that every single day, the culture will pull you away and you will drift away from understanding who you are in Jesus and it will stunt your growth and maturity. And so there's an activity involved in setting your mind on Christ. I love the way Eugene Peterson puts it. Colossians chapter 3, verse 1, he says it this way. He says, so if you're serious about this, living this new resurrected life with Christ, act like it. If you're serious about living this new resurrected life with Christ, then act like it. Don't pretend. Don't just say, well, I believe in Jesus and I have Jesus, and then you just go throughout your day. You need to act like it. You need to set your mind on what God is telling you to do. And then he says, how do you do that? You put off these old ways. You used to walk in these ways with anger and malice and all these different things and put on this new way with gentleness and humility bound together in harmony with love. And then he goes behind the curtain even more at the end of chapter three, which we've been covering the last couple of weeks. He says like, listen, this is what it looks like in your closest relationships. Behind closed doors, husbands and wives, kids and parents, and now in, in this co-working relationship between servants and masters. What does it look like for you to put off the old and put on the new in these most important intimate contexts so that you grow into maturity in Christ? That was a lot. Now let's look at our text this morning. Okay, it won't be as long. But I think it was needed and helpful. So let's look, uh, open your Bible again to uh, Colossians chapter 3, if it's not already there. To, uh, we're going to start in verse 22. And this is, we're going to go through five verses and we're just going to kind of slow, uh, go through them and begin to understand what they mean uh, at the time and then for us. So verse 22 of Colossians 3 says this, Bond servants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service or as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. When you think about your work, what you do full-time, uh, some of you don't have work, some of you are in school, and maybe you think about school or you think about work, why do you do what you do? Why do you work the way you work or don't work the way you work in your context of work or school or the, the things you spend time doing, and do you really care about those that have authority over you in those places? This is what Paul is driving to for us. And when we think about motivation and we think about why we do the things we do, I think it's helpful to think before Jesus, before you have this new life in Christ, let's look at what the world says should motivate us in our workplaces. And there's two extremes that I want us to touch on for us to understand what the context that Paul is saying here. One is that you would have a motivation in your work that you would be all in. Man, you're all in for your job. I was talking to a friend this week, and they were just kind of describing uh, their journey. They just retired, and they were in the medical field for years. And they were trying to decide at the beginning of their career, like, which direction should I go in this field medically? And they sat down with this doctor, and he was doing an interview. And in the midst of this interview, he goes, if you were taking the test to be board certified, and you didn't know an answer, but you knew the person next to you knew the answer and you could glance on their paper and get the right answer, would you do it? And my friend in good conscience, as he's a follower of Jesus and tries to obey that ethic, goes, I wouldn't, I, no, I wouldn't do it. And he goes, this interview's done. He goes, because we only want people that care so much about their job that they will do anything to get there. 
right? And that's kind of the world standard of like, if you're not all in in your job, then it doesn't really matter. That's one extreme. And so you start to live in that way. I'm going to do everything I can to impress my boss who has the power and authority to promote me. And so I will do anything it takes to win that approval and that authority. That would be one extreme. The other extreme is not the all in, but the barely in, right? When it comes to our motivation and our work. Recently, in the last couple of weeks, I've seen two commercials that are from different companies that kind of are sending the same message. Since we moved to kind of this remote working reality in our culture, one, one commercial is this dude, he's laying poolside and he's working. He's on a call, right, on his computer and like he's plugged in and it has something about like, you can work at home by now. Like, it's basically like, listen, I'm gonna do as least amount possible so I don't get fired. The other commercial was a, a similar thing. Somebody was on a Zoom call, a conference call, and they were in a bar, like at a party, and all of a sudden they had to speak up, and they had a different background, and they went into this bathroom stall. No, oh, I'm here, I'm here, I'm here, I'm here, I'm with you. Basically saying, like, what can we do? What's the least amount that we can do so we don't get fired? What's the least amount I can do to pass this grade or, or make the test? Because I don't really want to put any effort into this because, like, it's just, this is pointless. It's a waste of time. Or maybe you don't like your direct boss, the person you report to, and you go, I'm not going to give them the time of day. It's kind of this passive version of revenge. And so you go, I'm not going to work hard because they don't really appreciate me. Those are two versions of our motivation for our workplace. And let's see what Paul says in contrast to that in verse 22. Again, he says, obey everything for those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service or people pleasers but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. He gives us two categories here, eye service and people pleasing. Eye service is this kind of idea of like, what I do will my bodice notice me, right? When you're motivated and you're thinking about why you do what you do, are you doing it so that your boss will see you and go, oh, good job, I'm gonna promote you and you're only doing it to be seen. My son, one of my sons is um, playing basketball, and there's a tournament this weekend called Section 7, and it's at Glendale uh, Stadium where the Cardinals play. It's 12 full-size courts in the arena. It's massive, and the whole point of this tournament is kind of the one year that if you don't play club ball or AAU ball, that uh, coaches will come and kind of scout you for colleges, and we went there last night. They've had games all this weekend, and it's just so interesting to me because what's happening even in that space is it's like it's kind of you, you can have the mentality like, okay, this is my one shot. If I'm going to get looked at and I'm going to get an opportunity to play in college, this has to be the time because people are looking and I want to be an eye pleaser to those coaches that are sitting on the sidelines and I want to make a difference. And so you can start to have this mentality of like, okay, this is my shot. This is my one shot. I have to separate myself from everyone else. And when you start to do that in a team sport, it's not helpful. It's not. But that's kind of our mentality. If we go all in and go, okay, I need to impress my coach. I need to impress the person on the sidelines so that I get a shot. And you're basing your mentality on where you go to college or if you play in college on your own ability rather than going like, what does God have for me? Can God give me an opportunity to play at the next level? Is that, is that something too far for his reach? Do I have to do it all on my own? I have another friend that played basketball in college, 
And uh, he would talk all the time, kind of similar to this verse of, he would go, whenever we had to do line drills, right, which is kind of, if you're not familiar with basketball, that's usually some type of punishment. It's, it's, it's some type of um, conditioning where you stand at the baseline, coach blows the whistle, you run to the free floor line and back. You run to the half court line and back. And, and it's this sprinting type of deal. Nobody likes to do it. Nobody likes to do it. And he would talk about any time they had to run line drills, he would, he'd stand up and he'd get really serious when the coach was, okay, on the line. The coach would be in the end and he'd blow his whistle and my buddy would just ha, 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 ha. And then the coach would like turn his back and talk to his friend and my buddy would be like, oh, okay. Right? He was only running hard when the coach was watching him. That was the only time. Because he's like, it doesn't matter. Like, this is the only person I'm trying to get approval of because he's the one that can put me in or not put me in. I don't care about anything else. So Paul's saying, don't do that. Don't be an, a, a person that is motivated by a, a eye service or being a people pleaser. If eye service is, will my boss notice me by what I do? People pleasing is, will my boss notice me by what I say? Or how I act, my performance. And some of us are so wrapped up at climbing the next rung to get where we want to get. We care so much about our supervisor or our boss or what they think about us. We lose sleep over it. And Paul is saying, if you're in Christ, you have a different kingdom mentality. It's different. Don't get swept up because everybody else, even some people in the church will say, no, 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 this is how you do it. This is how you make yourself known in this kind of, this is how you get to promotion. And Paul's saying, don't do it. Don't get caught up in that trap. It is a trap. And it will wreck your motivation and it will cause you to have an unsincere heart is the language he talks about in the text. He's saying, you're free from that. You don't have to live that way anymore. That is going to stunt your growth and maturity in Christ if you operate that way in your motivation in the jobs that you're in. So what's the solution? Paul, like, what do you tell us? How, how, if I've lived that way my whole entire life because the first time I did any, anything uh, that got praise that I can remember in some subconscious way, it's the first time you take any athletic steps across some type of hallway to a family member or a grandma or a mom, and, and what does that parent do when you walk across and you take your first steps? <gasps> you did it. Good job. So that becomes a drug to you to go, that's, I want that all the time. And so you begin to condition yourself and your motivation starts to be, give me that attention. And Paul is saying, when you come into a relationship with Jesus, that's not what you're after. So what does he say? How do you change this? The change is to shift the focus of your motivation. To shift the focus of your motivation. Verse 23, it's what Paul says. I'll start back in 22, and then we'll read into 23. Uh, 22, bond servants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service or people pleasing, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Verse 23, whatever you do, work heartily. That word heartily is the same word in the original language of when Jesus gets asked, what's the best commandment? Or what's the most important commandment? Fear the Lord God. Love him with all your heart, mind, and soul. And love others as yourself. It's the same word, love him with all your heart, mind, and soul, with your everything. So whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. Knowing that from the Lord, you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving Christ the Lord or Lord, the Lord Christ. 
So the object of your motivation as you continue to work is no longer the one who has authority over you. It's not the coach. It's not your boss. It's not your teacher that can do the things you want to move up that rung and that ladder. It's Jesus. And here's the interesting thing about um, changing your motivation or shifting the focus of your motivation. There's a big difference between working for something Working for something versus working from something. Let me say it one more time, and I think there's a slide. Working for something versus working from something. Working for something, again, you're trying to impress the person that is over you. You're trying to climb that next rung and that ladder, and you don't realize it's leaned against the wrong wall if it's not towards Jesus. That's working for something. And we can even bring this into our Christianity. I have to work to uh, have God approve of me. I have to read my Bible. I have to care for the poor. I have to do all these things for God to be happy with me. And what is Paul saying here in verse 24? Knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You're not working for something. You're working from something. You already have it. In Christ. If you're in Christ and you've been brought back from uh, death to life, as he says, as he's addressing these Colossians, like you're already fully complete. You're already loved more than you could ever know. You don't have to earn it anymore. That changes the way you operate in your motivation day to day. Now, don't get confused and say, okay, well, if I already have the inheritance, there's no effort at all. Paul is saying, work hardly with all of your might, with everything that you have, not for men, but for Christ, and not uh, to, to climb this ladder, but to understand who you are. I love the way Dallas Willard put it when he said this way. He says, grace, which is this idea of getting unmerited favor, grace is not opposed to effort, it's opposed to earning. Earning is an attitude, effort is an action. And this is the beauty of the gospel, That because Jesus comes and takes our place, we don't have to work anymore um, for something, to earn something, to earn his acceptance or his approval. We get to work from that acceptance, from that approval, and we get to work hard. And you might say, man, that's great, but you don't know my boss, like honestly. Like you don't know who I work for. You don't know where I go to work every day. And the person that's over me every day is a horrible human. And does not treat me right. Does that still apply to you in this text? It does. Now, if you're in a situation that you need to get out of, take steps to get out of that situation. That's on you to say, okay, what does it look like for me to not work here but work somewhere else if this is just not changing at all? But your heart, your motivation should be, I'm not working for this person that doesn't, I don't really like. I'm working for the Lord. And this is what Paul tells us in the back end of our text this morning, verse 25. This is helpful for us if we're in that situation. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Verse 1 of chapter 4, Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. So if you're in that situation, and you have a boss that you don't agree with on a lot of levels, Know that there's accountability. Know that God sees you. doesn't leave you alone. You have agency to make decisions and to change. 
But no, you, you're, you're doing it from a place of your forgiveness and your inheritance of what God is going to do when he comes back. And all of that is going to be put aside. That should change the way we think and act in our motivation. Well, as we kind of close, can we just talk about verse one for just, just a real quick second? Um, because we're, we're ta- I've been talking about like, what does it mean to be under somebody's authority in that kind of context, which we all have some version of that most likely, unless you just own your own business, which some of you might. But what happens when you're over somebody else? You have authority over people that report directly to you. And more importantly, is I think we think about this and we can kind of zoom out more on a broad level of going like, who are the people that give us service every day, right? And as I started to think about this last week, I started thinking about the people that um, they're small interactions with, but they're serving me in some way, whether it's my waitress or my waiter. Maybe it's the barista when you get your coffee. Maybe uh, it, it's the person that is checking you out, the cashier. How are you called to treat them? Because you have some version of authority in that little moment with them. You're paying for them to do something for you. How does God call us to treat people that are in those spaces? This word in the text in verse 1, it says, treat your bondservants justly and fairly. The word fairly in the original language is an interesting word. It literally means equality. So when you interact with those people, are you treating them with equality? I was prepping this sermon on Thursday, which is typically my day to kind of spend more time in the text and prep. Um, Friday morning, I go to get the oil changed in my, my wife's car. And I'm sitting there as the thing opens, and it's been open for 30 minutes. There's not any line. I checked it, but I drove by, and I'm going, okay, this is a good time to go. I go, and I'm sitting there, and I'm just sitting there for like five minutes, just totally ignored. And I start to like, I'm going like, okay, like what, what? What the heck is the deal? Like, what is this? What is this? Right? Like, I came right now because there's nobody here. Why am I just getting, I see people walk by that work there, and they're just like totally, they're just not ready for me for some reason. Should they be ready after they're open for a half hour? I think so. But they're currently not for whatever reason. So I already start to get like agitated, and I already start to go like, okay, this guy comes over here. I'm going to be like, dude, what's the deal? Like, this is, and I started to realize, like, as I'm reading this text, like, Am I treating that person fairly and equally? Like, do I, do I value them because they're created in God's image and they have the exact same value as I do? And I started to get convicted and go like, I don't know their story. I don't know what's going on behind the scenes. I don't know what their boss is like. I don't know what they're being told. I don't know any of that. I'm making all these assumptions that I can kind of be snarky and nasty with this person because I've been having to wait here for five minutes and that's unacceptable. I think what God is telling us is those people that serve us. And then it was just like the person uh, when we parked at the stadium. Like all these people, I start to go, oh my goodness. I have all these opportunities to love people in the midst of feeling like they're not doing their job well. And I have no idea how they're supposed to do their job. How do we love people and treat people that are under our authority, even for a moment, that are serving us? Do we have a heart of kindness? It doesn't mean you just get walked all over. I think there's appropriate places that you can ask the questions that are right. But are we treating with equal value, with fairness? Or do we go, oh, they're just supposed to get my coffee? They're not as important as what I have. Like the, the, the person at the oil change place isn't important. I got things to do and places to go, and they should be able to serve me faster. That's not okay. 
Can we be people that love people that serve us well? That's what Paul is calling us to. What if we were people that treated others well this week as they served us? In those small pockets, we smiled at them. We didn't get mean with them or snarky with them. But we didn't assume we knew the story. We had humility to move towards them in love and patience, which is what Paul is calling these people to. Put off anger, malice, wrath. Put on compassion. Put on humility in love. Can we do that this week? What if instead of working for our bosses to be impressed, we worked from a place of freedom with gratitude to the Lord for what he has done for us, leaving the results in his hands? My son goes and plays another game today. Is he going to go out and try and get buckets and get all the things that, oh, I got to look this way? Or is he going to go, look, I trust the Lord. I trust the Lord with my future. And every moment I have the opportunity to worship him as I step onto the floor, as I treat my teammates a certain way and encourage them, as I treat my opponent a certain way and encourage them, as I work hard on the basketball court, I can trust the Lord for the results and I can work with all of my effort as a sense of worship to him. Could we act that way in our jobs this week? Trusting the Lord, not for who's over us, but that we would work from a place of gratitude, thanksgiving, and love. Let's be those types of people. Let's pray. Father, thanks for your goodness towards us. I pray that you would help us be these types of people, God, that are kind to one another. Whether we are over somebody in authority or we are under somebody in authority, would we uh, move from a place of working for them to working from a place of who we are in you? And that through that, you would help us understand what it means to grow and mature in the gospel so that we could be presented mature and that we could be changed. Thanks, Jesus, for this time together. Pray that you would be with us during our response. We love you. Pray in your name. Amen.